Ambidexterity is about three things, right? And I think we way overcomplicate this. It's about ambition. What is the strategic ambition of the industry? And talk more about what I mean by that. Secondly, what's the, can you give autonomy to the explore so it can operate with this different logic? And then how does it maintain access to the assets of the core okay. business? This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Well, hello, folks. Garrett here. Let's begin this episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast by welcoming back my partner in crime, Professor Dries Foms, Chair of Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Technological Transformation at Feihau. Always a pleasure to co-host with you, Dries. Hi, Garrett. It's, it's great to be here again. <laughs> it, is, it is good to see you once again, my friend. Um, so today, Dries and I are welcoming uh, a fascinating guest and an unquestioned thought leader in the fields of innovation, venture incubation, organizational ambidexterity, and much more, Mr. Andy Bins. Andy's CV is really as impressive as it comes. He's the co-founder of an innovation advisory firm called ChangeLogic, where he's advised senior leadership of some of the world's greatest companies. He's a fellow at the Center of Future Organization at the Drucker School of Management, and he's a member of the executive board of Fast Company. Andy's also a co-author of some of the most significant innovation publications of this century, including Corporate Explorer, Three Disciplines of Innovation, Ambidextrous CEO, and many, many more, uh, too many to list in this little monologue. But rather than uh, me continuing to butcher Andy's credentials any more than I already have, um, I will pass the baton to the man himself to tell his story. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Andy, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great. I'm de delighted. Thank you for the invitation. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's great to uh, be with you and your, and your listeners. Yeah, so um, I, uh, my sort of world was, was, was initially one of bouncing around, uh, as, as, as um, many others do. I actually um, uh, went to graduate school in New York um, and studied um, political philosophy. And then at some point, my first commercial thought was, geez, there's not much market in the world for political philosophy. It turns out we've really probably got enough thinkers out there already. Um, and so maybe um, uh, I don't need to, to do that. And I kind of got bored with the, uh, the way that all of my professors hadn't read anything in a decade. And I'm like, I uh, started to doubt uh, the, the, the value of what I, what, what, what I had. Um, and so I, I, I bounced around a bunch of other sort of marketing roles, ending up in consulting and at McKinsey. And at McKinsey, um, my, my role was very much uh, around 
um, organizational change projects. McKinsey, you know, has traditionally, uh, I think still, um, you know, focused on analytical strategy problems. I was much more focused on human problems at that stage in, in my career. Uh, and uh, and so I would get involved whenever there was, as there really always was, a significant shift in terms of a senior team or organizational shift or something of that nature. And, and then one day somebody walked into my office with um, this thing called the McKinsey Growth Practice. And they'd just written this book uh, on the alchemy of growth. Uh, and this, um, uh, this chap, um, uh, Sajal Coley, who I think now is a, a, a partner at McKinsey or director potentially. Um, and Sajal told me about what they were trying to do to help corporations manage um, the need to balance short-term with long-term. And how could they work with clients to do that? Because they'd figured out already that the traditional McKinsey model of go give them the answer wasn't working. There was something more fundamental happening inside the organization that was kind of getting in the way. Uh, and, and so uh, as it happens, I got, uh, I left McKinsey just shortly after this and went to IBM and I had this really special role supporting senior leaders in IBM. Um, and it was a very small sort of internal consulting group. I didn't really understand perhaps just how special it was, but I then had five uh, happy years at IBM and, and, and I got drafted into to work with what was called the emerging business opportunities. And I went, wait a minute, that's what Sajal was telling me about. And we're doing it here. Well, that's cool. And so I got lucky, basically, uh, of entering into the exact thing that I was really curious about, which is how do we wrestle with the question of renewal and, uh, and innovation inside large, established, successful organizations? And this little moment at IBM was one where they created some billion-dollar businesses, um, 2000 to 2007. And so I got also to see some success. And I'm not saying that success was, was mine or attributable to me. I'm just, I, I got to be a part of that. Uh, and I learned uh, a ton from that. And, and one of the things that happened is we brought in these two business school professors, Mike Tushman from uh, the Harvard Business School, Charles O'Reilly from Stanford. And, and they had um, sort of developed a, a method for working at organizations to help surface some of these barriers to change and innovation. And we applied this like relentlessly with team after team at IBM over, over five years. Uh, and particularly with these emerging business opportunities. And so I saw this work, I saw how this integral connection between innovation and change was happening at IBM. Uh, and so, you know, cut a long story fast, there was a little episode in between, which we can uh, talk about if we really want life to get ugly. Um, uh, but eventually I said, you know, well, hey guys, why don't we set up a business? So um, standing on the banks of the River Thames in London underneath an umbrella with Mike Tushman one day in 2007, we hatched the plan to create what's now called Change Logic, And uh, we've been running this firm for 15 years, working with a bunch of different organizations, helping them do uh, essentially what we did at IBM, but we've learned a lot since then. <laughs> and, and, and people have told us, you, uh, you know, people like Steve Blank, like Ron Adner, which I understand some of your recent guests, you know, we've learned all of their, you know, lessons, well, not all of their lessons, we've learned from them, we've learned from others. It's, it's not a case where, you know, at IBM, we had the magic fairy dust and everything else is golden. Uh, it was a good experience, but it's a constant learning process. Great. And, and maybe because uh, you recently wrote a book together with your uh, two uh, friends in crime, oh, thank <laughs> uh, you. The, the Corporate Explorer. And when I started reading the book, I was really triggered by kind of the, the provocative assumption that you seem to have. Because I think 
most people, I think today, and maybe that's really influenced by the work of, of Christensen, uh, the, the Innovators oh. Dilemma, I think a lot of people have the assumption that, that large established corporates are likely to become the victim of disruption. And you make the claim actually quite quickly in your book that actually corporates can be the driver of disruption, which to be honest, I found a quite provocative yeah. statement. Yeah. So can you explain a bit more how you came to that, that insight? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We do have this strong assumption that, um, well, a strong assumption there's only one story. And there's never only one story. The world is wildly more complex and much more diversity than one story. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I in no way dispute um, Christiansen's fundamental analysis that, that uh, disruption exists in the world. And there's a bunch of very successful firms that lose with incredible speed, um, uh, lose, their, um, uh, lo lose their position uh, and they're rejected. And there's also no question that startups are um, a vital source of innovation and creativity and energy momentum inside an, an economy. Um, and um, I think that th these things can both be true. And the other thing that can be true is that there's some corporates who are really successful. And, and you know, I could go to what I think are some well-known examples um, like um, Microsoft. Microsoft 2010, everybody had a script about them, which is they're going to lose to Google. That mm -hmm. Gmail and Google Docs are going to defeat uh, its desktop installed software. And there was even a month, a quarter where they lost money um, as a corporation, right? This is like mm -hmm. extraordinary. But that's not what happened. And it's not, th this transformation was not Satya Nadella, right? This all started before Satya Nadella under a leader called Chi Lu, who was responsible for the application services group. And what Chi Lu did is he separated out his existing um, office desktop business under Julie Larson Green from um, uh, his business um, for um, Office 365 in the exchange, moving the exchange server to the cloud. Um, under uh, uh, another gentleman whose name has temporarily escaped me, right? And, and then they developed both of these business models side by side, right? Uh, and then eventually 365 took over. So they sort of self-disrupted in this way. And, and, and this is a more common story than we realize. And what's interesting is that that doesn't make the headlines like unicorn, you know, lists, uh, on the Nasdaq, you know, yet another um, uh, uh, unicorn from your fine institution, right? That that's a great story, and we should celebrate it. But that doesn't mean that these other stories aren't happening. And yeah. and you know, they 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 they're pretty extraordinary. We wanted to explore that, explain why it happens, and and indeed how you can make it happen more often. Yeah. Andy, a quick question. Quick question on that one, which is. Um, you know, and, and maybe I'm I'm stealing a little bit from, you know, kind of Steve Blank's um, perspective on this, which is, you know, well, I, I mean, I guess taking it back a step and saying, what is disruption? And, you know, you're a McKinsey guy thinking of the kind of three horizons of innovation. I think what you're, it sounds to me like using the Microsoft example, maybe that's kind of horizon, horizon one innovation. Do you believe this 
this holds true up into like the the new market creation levels of Horizon 3 innovation? Or is this more the incremental in the context where you're chasing market share? Yeah, so so I, I, I think honestly, you're miscoding Microsoft. Um, so the key thing about disruption is what is the industry standard at the time and how and are you changing it? You know, um, the taxis, taxi industry in the world had a set of rules about how it operated. Uber came along and changed it. Um, the razor blade industry, think about, you know, here's um, uh, Gillette trying to worry about whether they can add a fourth blade and Dollar Shave Club comes along and says, well, guys, actually, we're going to reinvent the entire way you sell and serve. That's a change in the standard. And from the point of view of Microsoft, moving from a desktop install business to a cloud business has traumatic shifts. They also move to a monthly subscription model, right? So rather than their main source of profits coming from enterprise licenses in the way that it was traditionally, they move over to this subscription model. And that, has, that changes all of their supplier relationships. And so they have to convince, um, firstly, their customers are CIOs who earn their living by managing you know, um, the server farms that, that have the uh, exchange servers on. They're going to move those to the cloud and they're going to take their partners with them. And they've got to think about a different way of doing customer service in this model as well, because the sort of the the the, the way that they're provisioning clients is different. And so there's a, this was a change of standard, just the same as Dollar Shave Club. And this is one of the things is that we, 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 we too easily miss how dramatic some of these shifts are um, with that corporations achieve. But it's not just that, you know, you can go to uh, a great example the, uh, the, we, with the story we tell in Corporate Explorer uh, is the story of LexisNexis, right? Um, and LexisNexis is an established corporation in its day, in it, when it was founded in the 70s, it was a revolution. Dial up access to case law Apparently, they kept the Supreme Court um, from a 30-minute uh, meeting. It went nine hours as they were dialing up on a modem to get case law. They were so thrilled by this experience, right? Fast forward to 2000, and this chap, uh, Jim Peck, says, hey, we've got some really important data assets um, that if we could just figure out how to connect with, um, uh, with other assets, get some linking database software, hey, we could have a whole new business and we create a category called risk data analytics or big data, right? We now, we don't know of the startup who did that because LexisNexis did it from under their noses, right? And it's now a bigger business than the original legal uh, uh, online information. And so these stories are just not as easy to pass. They're not as, you know, eye-catching. They don't, the, the, the leaders who do them tend not to, frankly, have the same um, uh, attention needs. It's mm. a polite way of putting it, mm. that some startup founders do, right? And I say that as a founder, you know, I founded ChangeLogic, run it 15 years, and uh, I've probably got those issues too. But, but, it, but it's, it, it's, it's that they tend not to be those characters. Right. And so there's just stories that are hiding in plain sight that we don't know. And, and in, in your book, you seem to emphasize that that companies can only achieve this. Right? So running their normal operational business that they have and next to that, actually engaging in more fundamental change processes and, and 
if you want to do that, you need to kind of separate it, eh? what, what you call in the book ambidexterity or structural yeah. ambidexterity. That's right. Why is it so important to do this separation? I think that the, the, the separation, so we you're right, we talk about this notion of ambidexterity. It's like I've been working on this for 20 some years and then all of a sudden the world has discovered ambidexterity and the ambidextrous organization. Mike has a, a former colleague from Columbia um, who opposed has opposed this theory for years and now suddenly is claiming it was part of her theory. I was like amazed at this <laughs> recent article she published. It's astonishing. Um, but anyway, but it's really great that people have, have uh, and this chap Osterwalder is suddenly explore, exploit this. Yeah, yeah, we, we published that some decades ago, man. You know, <laughs> that we know this point, right? Um, and and the, 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 the whole point about explore and exploit um, or core and explore, uh, I'd much prefer to call it because exploit implies some sort of judgment, right? Mm -hmm. It's the old business. It's the tired business. It's also the profitable one. And hey, we like that money, right? And we like those jobs. We like that value, so on. So, so core and explore, they, they have a different logic. Core is working within a... A, a, a known world or knowable world in which there are certain rules that you can look at and there's data of past performance, there's an established basis of competition, um, there's some way of, then there's not the change doesn't happen, but there, it's within a set of established boundaries. On the explore side, those boundaries have not been set. Right? This is un high uncertainty, high variation Right? And a standard hasn't been developed. It's, it's in another language, it's the blue ocean. Right? And you're kind of swimming around in the blue ocean. Now, if you're doing that and you see these two different logics, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for the core business to genuinely do the explore right? because they can't cope with that degree of uncertainty, that degree of variation. And so a lot of the failures of corporate uh, innovation at the radical edge, not at the incremental, come about because you're trying to put that responsibility on the core business. And it just can't be done. And it's not because they're not good people. It's not because they're not smart or intelligent. It's just the logic makes it impossible to do. So you've got to, you've got to separate. You've got to create some autonomy for the explore business so that they can operate within that logic, which is you know, more incremental. And we should talk more about what that involves. But, um, but I think that's the core behind structural ambidexterity and as an academic Dries, you, you rightly prefix it with structural ambidexterity because there are others who have a different view. I, I, and candidly, as a, a sort of slight academic, but mostly a practitioner advisor, I don't understand this, the, the people who advocate a, a, a ambidexterity as a, a, a mental, uh, a thinking a cognitive activity i don't get that or contextual ambidexterity is the other one right yeah. you know, and 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 it was always held up that google was a great um uh, example of um of contextual ambidexterity which means you give every person the opportunity to experiment within their day-to-day -day job well guess what google is still struggling google x still didn't make it you know uh, and they have more failures in their uh, innovation story than successes because it's really tough to do yeah maybe to give you a bit pushback so i, I see your logic for separation but I sometimes also see that within companies that can trigger a situation where you can create what I would call a kind of isolated islands. So separate places far from the headquarters where 
where apparently fancy stuff is going on, but nobody else within the organization understands that they seem to be very independent. But then in the end, their ability to actually have an impact on the business seems to be quite limited. Yeah. And, and so there's some sort of index we should create, Therese, about um, success of um, a corporate innovation unit and sort of spend on office furniture, uh, ping pong tables and so on. Right? <laughs> you know, and, and I once advised this uh, U.S. defense company, we were um, helping them think about how they set up an innovation unit and they were just obsessed with the interior decoration. And you're like, guys, that is not the point. That is not the point. And so, and so the, the ambidex, ambidexterity is about three things, right? And I think we way overcomplicate this. It's about ambition. What is the strategic ambition of the industry? And talk more about what I mean by that. Secondly, what's the, can you give autonomy to the explore so it can operate with this different logic? And then how does it maintain access to the assets of the core okay. business? And that's got to be for three reasons. That access is about... Firstly, um, uh, leveraging those uh, uh, assets um, to go faster than a startup. That's kind of the point, right? Secondly, um, so that um, uh, it um, can, can find what one of my clients calls a happy home, right? Because sometimes it's going to come back into the business unit rather than be a separate thing. And then thirdly, it's going to teach you, right? Especially in the digital age, it's bringing capabilities that we want to help enhance our uh, uh, abilities, even in the core business. So for these three reasons, I totally agree with you, Therese. You, you cannot, you should never, uh, I don't think never is a very strong word. I find it very difficult to understand why you would think of um, an innovation unit as this completely separate thing. And I've got a, 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 and a, and we can go on and talk about my stance on entrepreneurs in residence, which, which is not overly warm, right? Because of this problem. <laughs> Maybe can you touch a bit, because indeed, I read in your book, you were saying somewhere, um, yeah, the, the, if you think about managers for this kind of uh, exploration, these are not the the prototypical entrepreneurs, uh, yeah, <laughs> to not, say it. These are not the Garrett McGowans that we no. need in that place. Yeah. We, need, yeah. we need other ones. Can yeah. you explain a bit why? And then Garrett can react. <laughs> so so this, this is, this is I, I agree completely, uh, um, uh, Dries. And, and, it, and it's something that, you know, uh, we've done a little research on, we published a, uh, an obscure article a bunch of years ago on this um, uh, about, um, we, we looked at, um, I forget how many, 30 or 40 different, what we now call corporate explorers, and tried to look at their, um, their innovation, their background and their success. And what became incredibly clear um, was that there was a strong correlation between failure and being appointed from the outside, right? And um, and that well, well, that got us curious as to well, why is that, right? And it, and it became almost comic because when we would go back to interview some of the people in our research sample, uh, what we found is they'd already left uh, the company that they were in, right? And and it's and it's pretty simple, and it, it was summed up by uh, a former friend of mine uh, at McKinsey. She was with um, a bank um, and she was also an entrepreneur. She was a restaurateur, husband and her created restaurants in Chicago. And she gets appointed to create a new um, credit card business uh, in, a, in another bank. It's a, for various reasons, it, it's, it's an explore piece for them, different business model, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she says in the first six months, they were so helpful. They were so friendly that, and so pleased that I was there. 
when I actually started to do something, all of that help disappeared. And so that by the end of it, it was like trying to paddle up the Amazon with a butter knife, right? There's mm. no interest in helping. And she didn't know how things got done. She had no relationships to draw on, right? There's no social capital. The business didn't know what her performance track record was. That's a really critical thing. So you can't isolate the factors in your decision about, well, is this just a, another bump on the road of experimentation? Or is this actually to do with this individual? I had this uh, exact situation turn up with a, a unicorn, uh, a, a business just went public uh, and the, the CEO and founding team um, spent a few hours with us because they were trying to create a new business, right? Um, and, and they said, you know, we, we created this new venture. We hired this leader in from outside. She seemed fantastic, but after two years, we've gone nowhere. And we think it's her. Because mm. implicit assumption, it couldn't possibly be us, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and you know, we talked to her, and you can see there was a little bit that was her, um, but a lot of it was them, right? Um, and so the, 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 this is the trouble. The outsiders lack everything that they need to get success. It doesn't mean that they can't succeed, and we can talk about one in particular that I think will succeed, um, but, but it's, it's just, it's stacked against them. I guess Dries is waiting for my my position on this. <laughs> well, I, I mean, Andy, I am I have been a startup guy for for twenty years. I've never had a job where I didn't sign my own paycheck, so I really know very little about what it would be like to work in a in a big corporate. I have built an enterprise SaaS company where I had corporates as clients, and and now I run a, a corporate venture studio where we build ventures in co-investment roles with with corporates. So I'm relatively new to this game, but what I can say from my limited experience is that in my opinion it it kind of takes two to tango, right? You you almost need the entrepreneurial energy and speed and uh, some of the I think there's some characteristics that come with entrepreneurs that maybe get, they don't necessarily, it's not that they don't exist in people that work in corporates, but the, the systems and the structures in which they operate may kind of quell them a little bit. Um, but on the, in the same breath, you need the people that know how to, to navigate those relationships, those structures, understanding um, what are sometimes conflicting objectives across business units, you know? So we're building multiple ventures right now with some of the biggest companies in the world. And I can say the partnerships where we have a corporate partner and internal champions that are getting those, uh, helping to unlock those unfair advantages that the corporates have are leading to successful ventures that we're follow-up financing. The ones that there isn't someone that's able to navigate the, the hierarchies, the bureaucracies, the relationships to unlock those assets. They tend to go nowhere. But I will say the reason we're, we're actually building ventures with these companies is because almost every one of them have tried to go at it on their own. They've built their, they've built their CVC, they've built their internal accelerator that ended up crashing and burning or their, their skunk works project. And even their M and a with the, the recent years of, you know, high valuations, they're not able to even acquire. So they've been looking for new ways to be able to drive bigger innovation. So in the end, I think there's a role for both, right? Yeah. I think that's fantastic. I love what you're doing. 
um, you know, it's a, it's an awesome um, approach. Um, and it's really about a both and. And, 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 and if I have, you know, one sort of message, that I, I, I remember, Dries, whether you got it from the book, but it's like, um, we cannot be dogmatic or religious about any of this. And, and you know, if, if you go to, um, you go back to maybe 10 years to the CBC crowd, you know, they would say, oh, we don't need to do any of this stuff. You just, you know, we'll just make the investment and then we'll buy them later. You know, well, that didn't work, right? It works occasionally, but, um, uh, and, and I think so. So the, the thing is, is not to be dogmatic about any one approach. I mean, it was only 10 years ago when the lean startup changed everything. Remember um, Steve's article in HBR, you know, and Steve himself said, well, like, that didn't work, right? So we just need to be extremely careful about fads. And it doesn't mean there isn't value in lean startup. There sure as hell is, right? And there's a huge value in Steve's work, but it doesn't mean that it's the answer, that it's the fairy dust. And I think we just got to get used to the reality that it requires a, a, a set of different approaches and tactics um, uh, to, 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 to pull, this, pull, pull this off. Maybe to, to touch a bit further on this, this aspect of what kind of people do you need to lead to this kind of corporate exploration? Because I think that's a very fascinating question and I see a lot of companies struggle with it and, and so you yeah. were saying before if you ask me and again we need to generalize here a bit but yeah. most of the time an outsider is not the right choice so you would say an insider but yes. when I read your book I also had the feeling that you that you really have a feeling that that there's a kind of new generation of leaders yeah. and managers necessary to pull off what it takes for corporate exploration can you maybe explain a bit more what kind of people yeah. you have in your mind when you talk about yeah. successful managers? So, so yeah, a couple of things. I mean, f firstly, I think corporate explorers have always been there, right? You know, where did the ATM machine come from? Do you know? It wasn't no. a startup. The ATM machine was first launched in Barclays Bank in the UK in, in 1963, uh, an innovation of the Delarue Corporation. Do you know how old the Delarue Corporation is? It's now over 300 years old. Right. And uh, and this guy had an idea. Hey, and it, it prints money. It prints currency for countries around the world. Right. So and he had an idea. He managed to get a client in a, a company engaged with it. He used some of the assets of Delarue. He got it out into the market. Right. So um, the, the 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 reality of corporate explorers is that they've been around. We just don't herald them or see them as much. And it's not as easy to isolate them as it is other factors of a business. However, I do think there's a there's sort of a tipping point as well. And, and I, I think that we've moved where um, uh, corporate explorers were, were an emerging thing. And when I was at IBM, this, and I talk about this in Corporate Explorer, um, Carol Kovac, uh, who built this IBM life sciences business, you know, Carol's a corporate explorer. We didn't call her that. Um, there was some sense in which she saw herself as being entrepreneurial and she was always a little bit of an outsider. Right. Um, uh, and, and that's a little bit of a characteristic of, of many corporate explorers. They're the, they're the people who make you a little uncomfortable right? <laughs> and, 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 who, and who are often seen as railing against the way things are and pointing out the future uh, and, and trying to, to, to get people to change. And that was very much Carol. But they're also passionate. They see something in the world that they want to change. This is the same as uh, as your entrepreneur, right? And so, if you yeah. go and look at um, Amy Wilkinson's book, The Creator's Code, and 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 Amy lists a whole bunch of different aspects of what what 
um, she did a big research on, on entrepreneurs. And, and, and this first one uh, about the sort of the passion to solve a customer problem, this is exactly the same, right? Uh, and and I this first came into focus with me sitting and talking to uh, this guy Christian Kurtish at the Austrian insurance company Unica, and 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 Christian I knew was um, uh, was building this business which he calls Share Risk, uh, which is now scaling um, uh, across. It's in Germany. Uh, it's in a number of uh, Eastern European countries as well, and um, and and this was something that he observed. He was frustrated that the insurance industry had lost its way, it lost sight of being a risk-sharing community uh, and become an, a, a policy administration machine trying to detect fraud from its customers, right? Uh, and he's like, how do I reinvent that sense of community uh, and do so for the digital age? And right? we can talk more about what he, what, how he did that. But the point is he had this passion. Um, and, and that again is something that you see. Uh, the, the, the other side of it is that there's humility. And this is where, as I indicated earlier, they may be different. You, Christian, um, to, a, to a degree, Carol, maybe a little less, she's a little bit different, um, but, 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 in, but she was a deep part of the sort of social network of IBM already. But they, they, it wasn't about them. It wasn't about their getting attention to them. They don't, Christian doesn't mind if other people think they made him successful. And as I did more interviews around the business, I would find that there were plenty of people who claimed credit for getting Christian started or helping mm -hmm. him along the way. And he has this way of just kind of sucking you in to his journey, right? So you just want to see him succeed. Uh, I've seen this um, with uh, uh, another character um, at uh, Analog Devices, his, his innovation is still in stealth mode, so I'm not going to talk about who he is or what he does, but, but uh, he, it, Venu is his name, and he just builds people around him. Every, it's, he's got an infectious enthusiasm for building something. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things this does is it helps him create social capital in the organization. He's got people who are allies who can unlock some of that resource that he might need to run an experiment. He's got some advocates who might intervene uh, in a business review when he's being trashed for not having met a revenue number and explain the context of what's going on. And he's got a few ambassadors who will go talk to the people who remain blockers uh, in, the, in the organization and help bring them on side when he needs to, right? And, and, and it's that kind of approach that's a little different now. For me, Harriet, your experience may be different, but when I talk to startup founders, um, particularly ones who've done a few, um, they're managing a big list of stakeholders as well, right? And they're more external, um, but um, you know, you get into several rounds of funding. That's an awful lot of firms who have a, a set of objectives that don't always line up with one another. Um, you've got partners. Um, you've got employees, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders. So it, it is different um, um, to a, a, an entrepreneur, um, but it's not fundamentally unexpected. And I think maybe one of the flaws that we have is that some corporate managers believe this mythology that uh, organizations are hierarchical and that, you know, you just, you know, somebody's given me this role. I'm in a separate innovation unit. I should just be able to do this. Well, that's not the world. It's just not the world, right? There are interdependencies to manage and it's the same everywhere. Uh, and these folks do that. So it's, it's about passion. It's about humility. Um, it's about being candidly a bit of a misfit. Um, but, it, but they also have an explorer thing. You know, there, there's, um, uh, there's this 
Dutch academic um, um, Peter Robertson, who's done a lot of work on on um, on on how you can look at individuals and teams in terms of what's their readiness to play at different points on an S curve, right? How how agile are they to operate, and how fit are they to the job? And 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 he profiles how exploratory people are, uh, essentially, in their in their their their, their um, propensity to want to push boundaries and this is a characteristic again of entrepreneurs or of the corporate explorers and the thing is every corporation has them at some point and it's a matter of whether you use them or lose them in the, i wanted to to dig a little deeper on this topic i find it super super fascinating and and you know i i agree on on all accounts what you said that you know, there are people within organizations, in large organizations that have the same kind of ethos and, and mentality as entrepreneurs. I don't see them as diametrically opposed. But if if I would outline one difference to the uninitiated, it would be what kind of freedom you get when you're building in the wild rather building rather than building and experimenting within a structure. And, you know, experiment like Entrepreneurship by default is hypothesis testing and experimentation. As a result, failure is deeply embedded in the process. As soon as you take the concept of failure and you put it in a in a more established organization where maybe failure isn't perceived the same way, risk profiles begin to change. How do you see organizations enabling environments of corporate exploration? Because I love this concept. I'm just trying to understand, I'm a, I'm a CEO of a large company. How do I bring these people out of the woodwork and give them the platform to take risks? Yeah, totally. So, so um. You know, one thing I, I, I want to say is, is it failure? Is it actually failure we want? <laughs> do we really want to fail? Is that what you're saying? Or do we want to learn? And I think we want to learn. And I think this failure thing and this obsession with failure is potentially one of our challenges because it triggers all the wrong psychological responses. Right? It's just it does in no way helpful to us. And so I yeah, would, language I would, matters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and 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 particularly in organisations, right? This is then uh, <laughs> this is what we've talked about. Um, and uh, and so I think if we can pivot this to how do we learn, how do we experiment, and then indeed how do we, uh, as you say, absolutely right, um, uh, test hypotheses, right? Uh, and this does become challenging inside organisations. Um, firstly, there's a lack of skill at it um, uh, uh, to actually isolate. Um, a, a, a testable hypothesis. Secondly, um, it's 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 culturally, and we haven't talked a lot about culture. That's what you're highlighting. It's culturally sort of um, not expected, right? And so all culture is is what do I think I need to do to be successful around here, right? And what I think I need to do to be successful in most corporations is I need to be certain and confident, not stand up and say I don't know which is basically what a hypothesis is. I don't know, but here's my best guess that I'm going to go test, right? And so um, th th this kind of understanding this cultural norm of uh, wanting to have a point of view, test it, be willing to say, I don't know, um, and to be driven more by the data um, um, than by gut instinct or by, um, uh, because I I'd say corporations think that that's what entrepreneurs are doing. But it's all gut instinct, and then some of it is. You know, I'm not against gut instinct, but it's not all of it, right? Um, and and so I think that, that, that so there's this 
sort of need for capability and skill around experimentation, which is fundamental. But then, then you know, how do you create a license to explore? And, and, and here, I think um, uh, this, this um, uh, example of Ajay Banga at uh, MasterCard uh, is a really good one. He took over as CEO like 2010. Um, you know, and MasterCard basically, you know, number three uh, in their industry of, of credit card uh, processing, right? It's quite a narrow part of the financial services industry. And he sets a strategic ambition. He says, I want to wage a war on cash and converts a, a high percentage of the 85% of people uh, of transactions, which are manual to digital. Mm. Now he just did a few things with that statement, right? The first thing he did was he expanded the addressable market for MasterCard. He said, we're not in this little segment of credit card processing anymore. I want to go after everything that's involved in cash and I want to replace it with digital. And uh, he also triggered an emotional response wage our war, right? A little bit of compelling sense of, uh, of passion around it. Uh, and, and then he provided the tools and equipment to actually call forth the corporate explorers, right? He had a very disciplined approach to getting ideas um, uh, from the organization. He had a lab structure for properly testing and experimenting with them. And then he knew how to, 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 to go scale them. Um, uh, in his business, and it led to them catching up and surpassing uh, Visa and so on. And it's a really great story of doing this, uh, of doing this well. And so, you know, whenever I talk to um, uh, CEOs, I, 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 I talk about how can they create a license to explore and then put some boundaries around it. Because one of the things that uh, corporations also struggle with uh, is their almost obsessive devotion uh, to ideation. Right? And they mistake creating ideas, generating new ideas with getting them done. Well, it turns out you can't spend an idea. You want to spend a business, right? You want to spend a revenue. You want to actually see it scale. And so these, this obsession with ideas, which is partly a psychological thing, right? It's addictive. We just love possibilities. We love, you know, imagining what if. And, um, and because resources are less constrained in organizations, you can do more excitements around the ideation than you'd get away with in a resource-constrained startup, right? And so what I uh, then advocate to CEOs is you've got to put some boundaries around this. Have your hunting zones. Where is it that you're going to explore to realize that ambition? And make sure that if you're going to engage people in generating ideas, which you know I do, I do believe in the need to do that, um, you do so with a much clearer focus um, and, and ask them, here are the customer problems we want to solve. What are your ideas for doing that? How could we build a business around doing this? And, and, and so on. That's much more likely to, to, to drive to success. So if you put all of that in place, then you can start to look for those corporate explorers that have the passion, have that uh, uh, ability to leverage the social network, have the, um, the sort of um, the right explorers um, uh, behavior to, to, to come forward. Uh, and then you get into the laborious task of experimenting and incubating and, and not spending too fast, right? Because again, you wanna, um, one guy I was with at this conference this week said, you gotta spend pocket money, right? You gotta, and that's very tough for a corporation because they love being serious. If we're serious about innovation, we should spend some money, right? And, and, and of course, that's just not true. You know, you, you've got to keep it lean for a period of time until you've got through that phase. So th this is another cultural challenge um, uh, that, 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 that we face. 
Because I think that's also interesting in your book. So you have a nice chapter where you explain how can corporates do this ideation, this incubation, where you actually explain this is the, the toolbox that we have. And it's very similar to the lean startup approach. It's about hypothesis testing, blah, blah, blah. But I think you also then say at the end of the chapter, the beginning of that chapter, yeah, but this is not the most difficult part. Yes. The more difficult part is then the scaling. So if you have generated ideas in the end, you need to scale them. And that's actually, as at least as I understood it from your book, that's when the going gets tough because then Absolutely. money has to be put on the table and you need to come to, to a scalable business. That's right. What, what are the kind of best practices for corporates to, to go into scaling? Yeah. So uh, thank Thank, thanks, Trish, for pointing that out because, you know, and my, my, my Harvard colleague, Mike, um, he likes to wind me up by saying ideation and incubation is easy. It's all about scaling. And I don't think that's the message. Um, but it, scaling is kind of what matters, right? Everything else, ideation is low risk. Right? No. That's, why they, that's why we spend so much time there. It's a trap, right? It's low risk. Uh, incubation, you know, I think probably the biggest corporate failure is moving out of incubation too soon, right? Spending too soon no. and it crashes too soon. And then scaling um, is hardest. And, and for me, scaling is about how do you assemble the assets, right? And you think about how most startups get an exit. Certainly in the United States, the most common startup exit by far is acquisition by a corporation. No. Right? That's how they scale, right? Why? Right. Well, because corporates have assets, they have customers, channels, relationships, they have capabilities to do with product, to do with technology, um, um, maybe to do with manufacturing. And then they have capacity. They have you know, large manufacturing facilities. They might have call centers. Uh, they might have a sales team, but there's ability to do something for more and more uh, people, more and more audiences. Right. And so your ability to to pull these three levers in different ways and some of it is to do with um, um, how you leverage the assets you've got, right? And I think that is the, the key thing for, for a corporation. How do I leverage what I've already got? But some of it you're going to buy. You are going to want to acquire um, um, either a you know, startup or some more mature asset. But you do it um, because you're driving towards an ambition. You don't do it and imagine it's the solution of itself. Right? That's the flaw of the M&A um, story and, and actually Clay Christian Craig Christiansen uh, did some research um, a decade or two ago where he looked at what's the what happens when firms buy radical innovation right you spend too much get too much too little back that's yeah. the that's the story right um, and so but if you add an asset like the Lexus Nexus story they they bought this uh, fairly large firm choice point and they they bought it for the data that it had. Right? And, um, and when I talked to the people who were in Choice Point when it was acquired, they're like, from day one, they had a mission with us. They knew exactly how they were integrating us into their business in order to achieve a goal. Right? And that's what scaling is, is all about. Now, you've still got to leave it separate right? um, because it's still got a little bit more dynamic. It's not mature at this point. Uh, it's going to work at a different clock speed 
um, still than um, the traditional core business in most cases. Um, but, but even that isn't one story. We, we tell the story of uh, Deloitte Pixel. Um, um, this is the you know, crowdsourcing of labor in Deloitte, which is it's a story which has moved forward enormously since we wrote the book. And, and my colleague, uh, Mike, has done a, another case uh, on that. Um, and, it's, uh, and there it's a story of getting closer to the core because they want to leverage um, the existing client relationships, right? Yeah. So the, it, it, it's never one, ex, one exact story as to how you set up um, the, the structure to scale, uh, but it's always about how do you get the assets to achieve an ambition? Uh, that's, the, that's the key message in this. And, and we should also talk some about, uh, you had Ron Adner on. And so Ron's whole thinking about what's the adoption chain in an industry is key here as well, because yeah. that tells you a lot about what partnerships you need, what acquisitions you need in order to reduce the risks that accumulate through um, uh, an ecosystem. Okay. Oh, and, and so to briefly go back to your your structural and dexterity solution. So I, I'm just curious. So if, if you work together with companies uh, in your consulting activities or just uh, maybe even in executive teaching or whatever, if you have discussions with these executives that, that try to do structural and dexterity, what, what do they see as the core challenge in implementing it? Where do they struggle with this notion of struggle, structural and dexterity? Um, they struggle mostly in, in two, two areas, I find. Um, one is relationships, is how, how do you understand what one another are doing well enough to be there to help when you need it? Yeah. Um, and so you need some structures, some mechanisms for keeping the core business engaged, not so that they have control and also not so that they waste their time, but enough so that they are involved in the story. So kind of scaling begins at ideation in a way, right? They have to have enough involvement, just like a, a VC investor that doesn't, doesn't just come in at the end and understand everything you've done. It's the same, same thing. Yeah. The second thing is metrics, right? Um, and this is really a challenge um, with, with, without question because you know, a more mature organization has uh, a disciplined approach to understanding its metrics and its KPIs and all this kind of stuff and a steering mechanism. Um, but a, a, a less mature asset, you know, you're going to manage it in different ways. And, and one of the, the ways that um, I think we talk about this in the book, we like to think about this is the difference between feedback and feed forward, right? Feedback metric is error control. Um, I'm doing this, I get a result, how do I, and it's not the result I want, how do I find out how to correct and get a different result? And you can do that where you've been, you have performance information, you have market information, you've done it before, you can compare it to other tactics and outcomes. And so revenue and profit and uh, yield and all of these kinds of outcome measures uh, uh, are appropriate. But feed forward is about, am I, am I getting to my goal? Am I getting to my ambition? What have I learned that tells me? I'm, have, I, have I validated or invalidated my hypotheses? Right? So it's much more about anticipatory um, 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 metrics, which is a much harder thing and, and feels, unless you prepared the ground, it feels like fluff to the core business, right? And this is one of the reasons they hate the, the explore sometimes is because they feel like, you know, basically their question is, what are you doing with my money? It's <laughs> not an unreasonable question. And I will, I, I would argue that at some point, um, the, um, the uh, venture um, builders will face this question as well, right? What are you doing with my money? Unless you can provide evidence and a track that shows them that you're being disciplined and accountable for your outcomes. And it's not just a free for all. 
right? That's the that that's then the the. Uh, so I think relationships metrics. This is where people mostly struggle. The structural part of how do you set it up and arrange it? Yeah, there's some some difficulties. How to deal with sales is always a challenge. Um, but 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 these are the these are the fundamentals. There's also a question of incentives we can talk about too. Though I think we spent too much time on that, to be honest. Yeah. I was just, uh, you know, I like to put these things into context. And one of the topics, you know, being here in Germany, I think one of the topics that is uh, um, still front and center um, in the corporate world is um, the massive transformation in the automotive industry in in recent years. Um, you know, there's uh, some of the most iconic German brands um, were working on EVs for decades uh, and have pumped billions and billions of euros into tackling that challenge. Here comes uh, along a, a young challenger out of California and literally takes over and dominates the market, becomes the most valuable, at least on paper, the most valuable car company in the world. I mean, you looking at an example like that, are there some is that just a, an issue of short-sightedness? Is it uh, an issue of pace? Is it because these these companies lack that ambidexterity? Was was it the wrong leadership in place? Like you've seen enough companies. Do you are there some red flags that you need to look out for for companies that are like, okay, you're a deep shit if you don't make massive change? I think um, yes, and, and I think that when whenever you're in a position where um, your profits um, are, uh, are are really strong and mature, and um, you you you're, you're, you've got that vulnerability. Then, if you look at the the way leadership behave, right, and and for me, the auto industry has always been more interested in itself. It's very proud of itself, right. And so I remember, <laughs> um, and uh, I. I I have to speak carefully because I do have auto industry clients. Um, so, but I went to one who's not currently a client uh, in uh, in Europe, we shall say, uh, and they explained their new, you know, new model release strategy, which was we bring all of the new cars um, to a weekend with the management board, and they decide which ones they like best. Right. So, and 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 indeed, you know, the the American auto company I work with, which. I, possibly fond of the people yeah they, they there's nothing they like about talking about more than their muscle cars mm -hmm. right? right and and so they have become obsessed with themselves rather than with the customer right and they've been dislocated from the customer by dealership networks and all the rest of it but mm -hmm. guess what you know we don't get a pass just because this is the structure of the industry and that's why expectations right culture has been determined in this way you've got to get the story and start understanding that this is about how you learn about your customers how you trigger um, uh, a response in them that says ah these guys really want to solve the problems i've got right i'm really interested in what they've got to do for me uh, in the way that people have that reaction to tesla um, and so i think that this is this is the piece are you um, are you obsessed with yourself rather than your customers? And then is the pace of change inside the company slower than the pace of change outside? And if you are in um, anywhere in Germany, in the auto industry, you've got to say for the most part, yes, yes, yes. I think Mercedes is a little different. I think they've played with a few things um, and um, I think they made some mistakes, but I think they've had some successes. 
Um, but the rest of them, you've got to wonder what they've been doing. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's driven a BMW for, for as long as I could afford one, um, I am pissed that they have still not got a vehicle for me to buy, right? So as a customer, I'm like, uh, yeah, if I didn't um, uh, dislike Elon Musk so much, I would have bought a Tesla long ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's, it sounds to me a lot of, similar to what Ron Adner was talking about is this ego, ecosystem trap, right? Like... Yeah, every looking inward, taking this kind of Ptolemaic view. Why didn't they call that book the egocentric, uh, (laughs) egocentric? It's such a dumb title to his book. I mean, it's such a brilliant (laughs) book. What is this title about, Ron? I don't know. but (laughs) Awesome. That is a beautiful phrase, the ego system. It exactly captures, and anybody who's worked in platforms, and we did some stuff with Ron with a client, um, knows that... Every company you come across, they all conceive of themselves at the center of this of this ecosystem. And you're like, guys, why? Right? And it's the same phenomenon. You're exactly right. Exactly right. Awesome. Well, I, I think we've come to a time where um, we wrap things up, uh, bringing it back to our guest with uh, a few more insights, uh, not into not just into all the things you've studied and learned over your career, but um, maybe some of the learnings that you've had as an individual. So um, same three questions we ask all guests. I'm guessing all three, like most people dislike them, but you're going to get them anyway. So um, first one is uh, imparting a little bit of wisdom. So what advice would you have for your younger self that you have learned throughout your career that you wish you had known back then? Yeah, yeah, that's that's always like a, an alarming question, isn't it? Um, I, I I would say um, uh, curiosity. You know, I, I think be even more curious. I thought I was curious, but I was nowhere near curious enough. Um, because if I'd been more curious, I would have learned things um, that I can now say, oh, I had exposure to this, right? Um, and um, and I could have learned about it uh, earlier. Um, I think that. Um, um, yeah, so that that would definitely um, be a part of it because, um, it, you know, it's a little egocentrism as well, right? We imagine ourselves at the center of the universe, um, whereas in reality, the world is so much more diverse and complex than that. And and so everything we think or experience is related to somebody else and somebody else is doing things. And, and, and you know, it's about being able to learn how the um, how the dots connect early uh, in uh, in in our in our lives, uh, and 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 also I think um, not conceive of ourselves as being right too too much, but then the second one would be not let all of that curiosity um, and uh, uh, and humility I hope um, get in the way of moving faster. I certainly am somebody who should have moved faster on a couple of things. For example, uh, the day that I spoke to one of my case studies in the book, uh, Jensen Huang at Nvidia in 2015, and he laid out what they were doing at NVIDIA. Uh, and um, between then and when we published the book, the share price went up uh, eight and a half thousand percent. And and, and, <laughs> and, and, and and I bought no stock in this company. <laughs> so um, definitely move faster uh, uh, and um, uh, and act uh, with, with confidence because at least you learn. And if you never act, you don't learn. And there's some things where I really feel that that was the case. Hmm. Yeah, it's great wisdom. All right, two more quick questions. Um, I've I've always believed one can learn much about a person by what they read. Um, 
What uh, do you have a book on your bedside table or a recent read that you would recommend? I'd have two. So on my bedside table is um, Marakami's uh, Norwegian Wood. Um, uh, I went to um, uh, Japan um, earlier this month uh, with a bunch of companies there, and um, and so I, got, I wanted to get myself in in tune with um, with Japan, uh, and I just love the uh, the way he blends. Um, he bends psychology and reality. It's kind of like amazingly. Um, uh, it's, it, I, I find it, every book of his is a, is a discovery and I hadn't read this one. And the other one I, I, I'm going to say is, is, um, is Both End Thinking um, by my friend and um, uh, co-author on some articles, um, Wendy Smith. And, and, and the reason I mention it is because it actually is a great companion to what we're talking about. Because what she's, she and her colleague, Marianne Lewis, are talking about is that um, you know, we get trapped in either or thinking. And we, we you know, th- this is almost always limiting the options that are possible to us. And, uh, and just as we, um, you know, think that entrepreneurs are great and startups are good, and that um, venture building is, is, is going to generate value, you, you can have both that and corporations do beat startups at innovation. Uh, which is the you know the subtitle of our of our book. So so I, I think I'd recommend it highly. Awesome, awesome. Last question, Andy. Um, what's cycling on your playlist when you're going for a workout at the gym, driving a road trip? What are you listening to? Um, so uh, so musically, um, uh, I, I, I'm I, I'm. I alternate between Beethoven string quartets and Scarlatti piano sonatas. So, um, because I find that Scarlatti um, um, somehow managed to get the exact wavelength of my brain patterns. Uh, and so that I can think more clearly when I'm listening to Scarlatti. Um, in terms of what I'm listening to the car right now, I'm listening to this awesome podcast uh, called Who Killed Daphne um, um, by uh, Stephen Gray. And it's this terrifying story uh, of the uh, journalist in Malta who was murdered in 2017 or early 18 uh, and the political um, corruption that led to this and he kind of tells this real-time whodunit story and he's sharing uh, uh, audio clips from when he was in Malta researching it and it's like it's hair-raising stuff so and and it's one of those things where you're just comforted um, that he's going to survive because He's published the podcast. He must. He must make it through, right? Um, but it, it's 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 fun stuff. Wow. I mean, the binaural beats you're getting from Scarlatti versus uh, murder murder stories that couldn't be any more different psychologically. I think. <laughs> awesome, Andy. Thank you so much. Uh, what an absolute treat to have you on the podcast. Uh, really a thought-provoking conversation. Definitely some things that I'm going to take back and reflect on in, in my work. I'm sure Dries the same, but thank you so much. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'd love to get feedback and challenge and ideas. I'm just constantly wanting to learn and to understand you know, more about this, this great animal of, uh, of corporate innovation. Awesome. Thank you. Well, folks, that was Andy Bins, author, advisor, and innovation guru extraordinaire. To learn more about Andy's work, check out his websites, uh, changelogic.com, and you can uh, learn more about uh, one of his seminal works at thecorporateexplorer.com. We'll be sure to put those in the show notes. 
Of course, please stay tuned for more exciting episodes in the coming weeks. And until then, if you like the show, be sure to follow us and provide a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.